Con mucho gusto. You want me to do audio or video? Uh, audio. Dear Lord, audio. My mom always told me I have a face for radio ever since I was born. And I'm like, that's me. And then she goes, well, the truth hurts. <laughs> okay. And then she said the other day, I listen to your podcast, and you don't even have a voice for radio. So wow. maybe draw or something. I was like, okay, whatever. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I have on the line here all the way from uh, Switzerland. You're in Switzerland right now, right? I am in Switzerland, yep. You're in Switzerland. That's beautiful. The French side or the German side? The French side. Nice. And how is your French? Uh, it's getting better, which is a polite okay. way of saying, bah. Yeah, it's my <laughs> way of saying all the French-speaking people hate you. Okay, we have <laughs> Father Gregory Pine here with us. Uh, Father Gregory, you are at Freiburg, Freiburg, Froberg? Yeah, exactly. How do you say it? Yeah, so Free- Freiburg, if you're speaking French, Freiburg, if you're speaking German, which people do both of here. So however you pronounce it, it's probably fine. I mean, in the United <laughs> States, we say Notre Dame, so all things go. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And what are you doing all the way out there in the Is it cold there? Is it like snowy there now? Actually, today we had a little bit of a hailstorm, but my experience of the climate here is not unlike my experience of the climate in Philadelphia. So, it's uh you'd expect that I was like wading through 3 feet of snow every day between November 1st until April 30th, but I almost said April 31st and then I realized it doesn't exist. <laughs> also, my favorite book of the Bible is 3rd Corinthians. Um but uh but no, it's it's pretty pretty temperate and um I'm out here getting a doctorate in theology. Oh, sounds boring. <laughs> What are you getting your doctorate in? Is it a doctorate? Is it like the like an ecclesial doctorate? Fancy? Yeah, it's, STD doctorate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 double fancy insofar as it's like I don't actually know how this works, nor do I know if what I'm about to say is true. But it's been told to me this way, and I hope that that person wasn't lying. But it's a dual accredited degree, so it's not like I'm getting two mm. doctorates. I'm getting one doctorate, but it's from a pontifical faculty in a state university. So depending, like if I'm applying for a job at, you know, Ecclesial Institute of Awesomeness, then I'll say like, yeah, I got an STD. Uh, But if I'm applying to secular school of, you know, crafty as serpents, innocent as doves, then I'll be like, (laughs) yeah, I have have a PhD. So I guess I can do that. I think I can do that. Uh, And I'm getting it in Christology. So specifically what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about Christ. And what does he have to say? Like good stuff? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's basically pro um, is what I've come to discover. And that's nice. fortunate. You know, it'd be a real bummer if he weren't. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at like the mysteries of Christ's life and what they mean mm. for us and how they save us, basically. Ooh, can we talk about that instead of your silly book? That sounds like an interesting topic. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we will get to your book in good time. And I have a lot of questions for you in regard to the book, especially the topic. But right now, this is okay, so here's my here's my fancy thing. See, you're gonna think everything that's gonna come out of my mouth is silly because you studied this four hundred years ago. But for me, it's fascinating because okay, so number one. Uh, the death and resurrection of Christ being the culmination of his his mission here on earth. However, the whole life of Christ is salvific, right? The catechism says that about three or four times. In particular, it says it around the moral life of Christ and the sacramental understanding of the sacramental mission of the church, right? The whole life of Christ is salvific, not just his death. And when you study the Eastern uh, churches, the Eastern fathers, whatever, they tend to emphasize the incarnation as accomplishing our redemption. Mm -hmm. In the West, we tend to emphasize the death in particular as the atoning sacrifice for our redemption. 
And I found it funny because I was listening to a bunch of Eastern Orthodox priests and bishops and a really angry woman, and uh, they were going through, man, do they hate the Frankish church, also known as Roman Catholicism. <laughs> but um, some of them do. There's this one dude uh, who apparently was a Catholic under at the Gethsemane Seminary under Merton, and then he became Orthodox Father uh, Patrick. Ah, he's a good dude. Anywho, he was the only nice guy. Uh, but what they tend to say is the the Western view of salvation more or less coalesced around the death and resurrection. But in particular, the death, whereas the Eastern view culminates around the Annunciation, the, the, the moment the divine and the human united in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so I, I find it so fascinating because in the Catholic Church, you, you discover, like, yes, there is a focus on, you know, obviously crucifixes and all that stuff, a focus on the death and resurrection. But theologically, it's the whole shebang. Right, and you get this when you study Advent. You get, or when you, when you pray through Advent, you get this at the Christmas liturgies. But I don't think it's emphasized enough. So, what do you think about my thoughts? Yeah, I love your thoughts. <laughs> I'm big into your thoughts. Yeah, I'm so for your thoughts. You are pro my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So here's a four-term, you know, analogy of proportion. Just as Saint Thomas is for Christ, so I am for your thoughts. Maybe not just as, but yeah, get it. All right. So, um, yeah, no, I think that's. I mean, that's at the heart of what I'm what I'm doing. Um, so my basic point is that his humanity, it, like kind of makes visible or makes manifest the life of God, which is being communicated to us. So he makes us like him, you know, partakers of the divine nature. And he accomplishes that through all of the mysteries of his life. So when he's being conceived, he is saving when he's, you know, uh, born, he's saving when he's presented in the temple, he's saving, you see where this is going. He's always saving. Um, but the question is, like, how specifically is he saving? And the, and the short answer is he's giving us God in his humanity, and his humanity accommodates it to us. Like, it, basically, if God were, you know, to give himself to us uh, in any way, shape, or form, you know, there, there might be better or worse ways to go about it, given who we are and how we learn, okay? So, like, when you try to teach something to someone, you quickly discover that some analogies work or some images work, and other ones are like, yeah, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. So God uses the, the, like the analogy. He uses the simile. He uses the metaphor best suited to our learning salvation, not in like a kind of head type way, but in a whole person type way. And that, that instrument is his sacred humanity. So the mysteries of the life of Christ show us the divine life. They show us the divine attributes. They show us what, what, like salvation, as it were, um, and they communicate it to us. So, yes, I would say to the East, yes. To the West, yes. And my, my kind of project is to draw the connection between those events. That's awesome. So within that context, what I always see is, you know, there are things that Christ does in anticipation of his death and resurrection. Yep. But at the same time, he says, for this, what should I say? Save me from this hour. No, it's for this that I have come into the world. And so... He draws a dramatic pose. I, I don't know. I've, I've, it's so fascinating because over and over again, he is demonstrating his lordship and his divinity and demonstrating his humanity in the brutalness that he receives, the, you know, the, the crucifixion. And so uh, one, uh, one question that someone had for me recently, the damnation which occurs to humanity through Adam's disobedience. Yeah. What comes first, right? In the Western tradition, so much of our theology comes from Augustine. Yeah. Right. 
and and it's centered on especially his war with Pelagius and his crafting of the doc uh, the the doctrine of original sin that is foundational in the Western view of things, but in the East, not so much, not so much. And so for them, uh, in this uh, the way he was articulating it, right, the union of divinity and humanity is what Adam lost. And it is what Christ recovers. So the first, before Adam sinned, he first divided him, or he first separated himself or alienated himself from the divinity, the divine grace that God had, had structured him with. But to me, it would seem like that's backwards in the sense, because it, sin is that disruption. And so for the Greek, and the, the Greek mind and the, and the Latin mind, I think this is where we, we run into kind of like approaches and attitudes that are so different, you know, because I'm like, give me the precise moment when the man fell. I want the instant that occurred, you know. <laughs> and for them, it's this, uh, it's a more, uh, you know, the mystery of iniquity, right? This more mysterious thing. I don't know. When St. Thomas talks about the fall, he describes it as a rejection of the dispensation of grace. Well, he, he starts with the fall of the angels before he talks about the fall of man because he thinks that the fall of the angels is a good way to get our principles right. Because you don't have to worry about, like, the passions, which is to say you don't have to worry about the body. Not that that's a worry. It's like, ah, crap, I have to think about the passions today. Um, but in terms of theological reasoning, it's just a little more crystalline because it's a pure spirit. And he says, okay, so it's a spiritual sin, which leaves us the options of um, pride or envy. Now, Suarez, later on, will say envy. They saw that the second of the Trinity was going to take human flesh and skip over the angelic nature and they got all out of sorts, and they rejected. Um, but St. Thomas will say pride, namely, that they chose themselves in place of God, or, and I like this explanation a lot, he says that they chose God like on their own steam, or they chose to have God by their own resources. So effectively what it amounts to is a rejection of the gift of divine life. So which becomes ironic in the context of the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, because how are they tempted? Um, so the evil one says to them, uh, you know, like eat of this fruit and you will become like gods, which is ironic because they are already like gods, right? Because they're made to the image and likeness of God. And because God is already pouring out his divine life in grace, whereby they're assimilated to the life of the most blessed Trinity. And so he convinces them that they don't have right what they in fact do. And so they choose it by their own resources and lose it in the process. So I think that like, um, when, when we talk about like what exactly happened or what was the precise moment in which we can identify the fall, I think it's like, um, it's like when you talk about a joke, all right, you're like, at what point did the joke happen? Well, like there's the setup, there's the delivery, there's the recognition, there's the laughter. Okay. It's like one speech act. And I think then that there's the me explaining the obscurity <laughs> of my joke. <laughs> Um, so when it comes to the fall, I think that what we're talking about is a, re a rejection of the dispensation of grace, okay? And, and like, the, the, so, so the angels would have known and we would have known at some level that we were made by God and that we were made for God. But the real choice was to affirm that, right, to ratify that, to, to choose to be from God and for God in the way that God willed. But we rejected that dispensation as a result of which we're, we're kind of left to ourselves, left to our own devices, which are kind of meager weak and wounded devices by comparison to what we had formerly. So I think, yeah, I think pride is what I would say, and that pride is, is, is manifest in the fact that we could be tempted, right, and the fact that we chose that temptation and then all that comes as a result. Did you take Christology back at Franciscan? I did not. I didn't, no. 
I don't know why I said that, both with a contraction, without a contraction. I did not, and no, I did not. Um, I didn't, and I did not, which are distinct (laughs) concepts. Because I I had it with, um, oh, I can't remember. He was a Norbertine priest that was there. And they, I actually did it via distance learning because okay. there was like a little hack you could do to get your degree quicker and cheaper, which is take a bunch of distance learning classes while you were a full-time student, and you could rack them both up all at the same time. And it was cheaper to do that than even summer summer credit hours. So at, during summertime, all I, like a bunch of guys would just have stacks of cassette tapes, and they're like crushing through the thing. So I did that. Um, and I regret it because this guy, <laughs> the one that they record, I don't regret it, but I wish I was with him in class because he was awesome. He was brilliant. Can't remember his name. I had no relationship to the dude except for my cassette player, uh, my sick, sick cassette player. But the book that they used was um, was uh, Roke, Roke Koretsky's, uh, he was University of Dallas, I believe, um, his... Uh, Wonderful book, Jesus Christ, Fundamentals of Christology. Okay. And in it, he goes through, uh, and, and I'm going to constantly harp on this stuff throughout the rest of this interview. He goes through his, uh, the atonement theology is like, of, of like everyone. So the church fathers, Anselm, Abelard, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, and then of course Aquinas, and then the reformers, and then he kind of goes to the modern, some of the modern views. When you're studying salvation, everything kind of revolves around, um, the life of Christ, but culminating in the, what did his death accomplish, right? That's like a big, big thing. So the, for the church fathers, it was entirely what they would just, you could summarize it as, even though there's variations, a ransom theology, right? Like Christ bought us back from the devil, right? And there's plenty of ransom language in, um, in the, the New Testament and the writings of Paul and whatnot. But that analogy kind of falls apart in terms of when you start to push it. It, 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 you know, the similarity and utter difference, the utter difference part's like, well, then who does Jesus pay? Does he pay the devil his blood? Like, does, does God not own the devil? Like, can he not utterly destroy? Like, what's going on here? And then you have Anselm, and Anselm comes along and gives us the satisfaction theory of atonement and takes Western theology in a completely different course right like it it truly is a theological innovation not to say that it's has no place from scripture but it it was something different than what came before it right and uh and it was kind of conceived of as injustice we owe justice natural justice we owe to god just by being a creature to our creator and so every single day we owe him perfect obedience as an act of justice so when we disobey him uh, we have to repair that injustice, but we've offended an infinite God. But then on top of that, we have to go beyond that and make right what we did wrong. And we can never do that to an infinite God. So essentially, not even an angel come can come and pay our debt. We need God himself to pay God for for human error. And we need humanity to own up and pay God for our error. So the great solution was the Son of God became the Son of Mary in order to simultaneously offer perfect satisfaction to the father. Uh, did I get that right? Do you think I got that right? Yeah. Okay. Now, wh- where do you where do you see this connection between the life of Christ being salvific and satisfaction theory of atonement? Do you do you lean more towards Christus Victor or are you a boring Thomas who's like, "Well, Thomas says in <laughs> prima pars secundae" <laughs> 
Questio. <laughs> Man, you've just cut my legs out from under me. Now I'm going to make veiled references to St. Thomas, but I'll attribute to other thinkers, so that way you don't <laughs> think that I'm a Thomistic hack. Um, so um, St. Thomas kind of like runs through different theories that are on offer, and he affirms them. He says each of them, like, okay, let's say that salvation is a thing out there that we're trying to describe, all right? And somebody's looking at it from this angle, and somebody else is looking at it from this angle, and they're giving complementary descriptions, each of which capture something about what's going on, but none of which exhausts the meaning of that something. He basically thinks that that's what's going on with, so he refers to merit is the first one that he mentions, and then he refers to satisfaction. And then he refers to sacrifice, and then he refers to redemption. And then he kind of t- ties them all together by emphasizing the fact, like, the real reason that Christ saves us is because he's God. And because when God acts vis-a-vis his creation, he gives grace. He, like, he gives himself. God is just communicative of himself, uh, which would kind of go back to your point about Eastern theology and the incarnation being a kind of deifying thing, insofar as God takes to himself a human nature. So what I'm trying to emphasize in my work is the fact that salvation isn't just a thing that God hands us, like the way that some people talk about vocation. Like I was playing video games in my parents' basement, and all of a sudden a lightning bolt kind of struck, and now I know that I'm called to be a priest, and I've never played video games since. You know, it's just like (laughs) I'm, I'm more of the mind that like a vocation kind of grows out of your life organically. It's like, yeah, I was like doing some mission trips and... I was like thinking about marrying this girl, but then I realized that I kind of wanted to be of service to the Lord in a different way. And then I encountered a Dominican friar and I was like, whoa, I think this is it. This seems to correspond, you know, dot, dot, dot. All right. But it's like, it's, it's, it's an, it's an activity, right? Salvation isn't, you know, step one, sit in a, like lounge chairs, preferably a chaise lounge, you know, by, by the edge of a nice pool, preferably in Southern Florida. Okay. And then salvation just kind of gets just gets laid on you thick. It's like, no, it's, it's actually something that is dynamic. It's something that uh, unfolds progressively in your life, and then you attain to it in a, in a permanent and fixed state in heaven. So I'm talking about like, so Christ <clears throat> lives a human life, right? Because when you think about salvation in terms of merit, for instance, St. Thomas will say that all of Christ's acts are infinitely meritorious, all right? Now, by that logic, all right, Christ, when he is conceived, the, f- the first movement of Christ's life is infinitely meritorious. So Christ could have been conceived, merited our salvation, and then our, our Blessed Mother could have miscarried. And that still would have been sufficient merit for the salvation of the whole world. So then the question is, why did our Lord choose to come to term? Why did our Lord choose to live for 33 years? Why did our Lord choose to pass through all of these mysteries in the course of his earthly life? And the fact is that like each of these acts says something about salvation and it actually moves us to incline to salvation. Like it assimilates us to, 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 to salvation. By imitating it, we attain to salvation. By being conformed to him, right, we have access to salvation. So like this whole theme that you hear, like the imitation of Christ or the following of Christ, it's not just like a, oh, you know, like Christ is a nice guy who does nice things and we should do, you know, nice things in turn so that we become nice guys like Christ. Um, no, it's like the, the stakes are salvation. Christ lives salvation and in imitating him, not just in like a, you might prayerfully consider this as an option for your future, but in the sense that like we actually are moved by faith and sacrament to a Christ life, right? Then we experience, we taste salvation and we, we 
I guess, progress in it, right, or incline towards it. So, so Christ is enacting salvation in a way that's perfectly suited to catch our attention, to draw us into it, and then to, like, have that same salvation, like, play out in our members, right, to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, to use the, the Pauline idiom. So it all, like, it all matters, right? It's all the unfolding of salvation, not in, like, a it's in any way deficient, you know, what Christ does, but in the sense that it's so super abundantly generous that it accounts for every dimension. So athletic greens, athletic greens. <laughs> okay. Can we, I, I just, I know we have, I know we've got it. We, ha, we ha, yeah. have some copy. My gosh, I am obsessed with athletic greens. I am absolutely obsessed with our next partner who has a product that I literally use every day. I started taking um, athletic greens because the pitch sounded very cool. This year, I wanted to just embrace embrace health again. You know, uh, that's just my big thing, and I, so it's one of the main reasons why I did athletic greens. And we and we uh, were able to meet with them and hear uh, a little bit of like what they're about. A couple other podcasts that are on par. They sent us these starter packs, yeah, which are awesome. Seventy five high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This is what I do. I come downstairs. I open the kennel for my dog. Dog comes out. I go right over. Fill up. My glass of water, 12 ounces, cold water, dump one scoop of Athletic Greens in there, and it supplements for the whole day. It's awesome because the stuff they use is sourced from whole food ingredients, made in New Zealand. It tastes good. It's a powder that you dump in your drink. You can take it on the go. All of my health care regimens have fallen to the wayside, except for Athletic Greens. That should tell you something. <laughs> I was a bit skeptical at first just because I was like, am I going to be peeing very expensive pee? Like That's what I'm, I'm wondering. So tons of people t- take some some like type of a multi vitamin, but it's important to choose one with high quality in- ingredients that your body's going to like actually absorb. I can feel that happen like immediately afterwards. And I've been I'm sleeping a little bit better. Everyone, I'm begging you to buy it so that you will keep giving it to us. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to. And, I mean, like, like honestly, God, I'm not kidding. Um, we're gonna like both Aaron and I are gonna keep doing this after the problem with these sponsors we start getting them because we're doing an ad and then i end up spending all the ad money on buying more products so So here's a great thing this stuff is lifestyle uh friendly whether you eat paleo uh keto vegan dairy free gluten free Mm -hmm. it's fine it's got less than one gram of sugar uh no gmos which is very important for me and my family no nasty chemicals or artificial anything it's really good stuff so uh this is what we're going to say to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase i have the travel packs i will be using the travel packs you don't have to refrigerate the travel packs all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash foxes again that's athleticgreens.com slash foxes move over joe rogan to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance thank you to athletic greens for sponsoring this episode of catching foxes and my body so good it's so good one of the things that i find in the catholic church today and this has been the theme of every niche about we went through the um international theological commission on the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy which is not an easy document to break open (laughs) for a general audience uh, via podcast uh, just the title alone, literally every week we got the same question. Hey, I've been loving the series, but what's the name of the document again? <laughs> and I'm like, seriously? On the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. And one of the things that I, you know, number one thing that I love more than anything else is pointing out that nominalism began the great unwinding of our sacramental worldview because it divorced creation from knowledge and action. Um 
And I find that the more I embrace the the father's I don't even know how to say his name legitimately, but Father Survey Pink Airs, the more I embrace his um I'm going through his reader now. Um yes. the more I embrace his writings, the more I realize like Oh, good Lord. Like, yeah, the the Via Moderna was b- born in the mind of William of Ockham and all these other things. Like, let's not be silly. But, like, the the nominalist revolution is epic. And uh, William Lane Craig is a nominalist, for crying out loud. <laughs> Luther was a hardcore Ockhamite, right? Through yeah. Gabriel Beale and all of these things. And, you re- like, you start to line up. There are certain dominoes historically that when you start seeing it, you're like, oh, that's one of the like that makes sense within that world view adopting that world view that makes sense but the the fascinating thing is you have to be a nominalist in order to be a modern because the modern has stripped the world of the meaning the the uh cognitive and performative effects of symbols right so the first thing the modern mind does is it shreds all of that reduces creation to just mechanism right and then views science, the highest of all sciences, the natural sciences, as the way to peer into the truths of a mechanism. And so it reduces the human element and, and meaning and purpose. It reduces it to private outlier, see, you know, you know John Locke, see all this stuff, you know, the, the political liberalism where ultimate questions are suppressed and they're not able to be decided by any body. Right, like you can't definitively prove this or that about the ultimate meaning, but the fascinating thing is the consequences that comes from all of this is that the sacraments don't mean anything except what I impose on them. They become uh, they become new things that I impose. So, for instance, um, we in in the liturgy wars of today, right, and all the craziness that's going down, and uh, you know, I go to a novus ordo church. I do not. I, I don't go to a Latin mass. There's no extraordinary form has ever been offered at my parish. Um, sometimes I attend an ordinariate church that's nearby my house, um, ordinary to the chair of St. Peter. And so, you know, I have some of that tradition. I grew in high school. I started going to a Latin mass, but never really did that much um, after moving to Texas. So I say all this because I start to notice patterns of this um, this modern conception of, of certain things like um, the stripping away of altars the 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 removal of not just sacred art but the very symbols that convey deep meaning is so lost on us today because we're totally divorced from the tradition i mean to go to to go to the latin mass at like a latin high mass or like with a bishop you know and then to attend your local parish's ordinary sunday mass you would think you were at two radically different belief systems because everything about the church, and I didn't even realize this, and I'm a freaking theology major, everything about the church is is suffused with sacramentalism. The angles of altars and the uh, the priest where he stands and every ounce of the clothing that he wears and every, like everything. I mean, like bells have names for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, like choirs have like... Why the organ? Because it's the closest instrument to the human voice. Why the human voice? Like all of these things that that build, and when you're divorced from it, it doesn't even make sense. But then you step back and you look at it and you're like, yeah, no, this is everything in life. The last great push for unified symbolism to drive life is the freaking Nazi regime. Like Hitler, Hitler, they wielded, they wielded 
symbolism. Like, I mean, it's a it's a study. When you go and study design and symbols and all this stuff, you have to study the Third Reich because they used the symbols all over the place because they knew there was power there. That, you know, you can try to modernize the human mind, but the human mind is still built around a symbolic understanding of the universe. That's what meaning is. How do we recover this, like, without it becoming the ploy of meta narratives of tyrants? And because uh, I, I look around and I see symbols as nothing other than vague sentimentality, hence the liturgy, that's a postmodern understanding, or symbols used as a conveyance of simple meaning, like an American flag, and that's about to a non veteran, right? Like, and that's it. And so, yeah, to change everything in the church becomes easy. Right, even though it's so welded to uh, when you understand the symbolic under the structures and liturgies and and everything, like to change it is to alter the gospel. Even you know, mm. it's presentation of the gospel. Yeah. Um, give me all your thoughts. thoughts. Give me I'm, all your controversial thoughts. I have many. Okay, so um, like first, right. Occam pro. Are you pro Occam? <laughs> yeah, uh, not so much. But that being said, I haven't read much Occam, so the little sympathy that I have for him, you know, I, I, I can't speak to my whatever. Here we go. I'm just going to actually talk about what I do know. Yes. So when, when it comes to the instrumentality of our Lord's sacred humanity, all right, our Lord assumes a human nature, and he like wields that human nature. All right. And it's significant that he he adopts a human nature because it's a particular kind of instrument. All right. It's an animate, rational, free instrument. Okay. It's not like a hammer, right? It's not like uh, a donkey or something like that. It's a, it's it's a human nature, all right? And he adopts it into his divine personhood. Okay, so he, he adopts it, he adopts the most sublime, the most transcendent of instruments, right? And he adopts it in the most intimate of ways, all right? Because it, as an instrument, can express or wield or make manifest or unleash uh, the, the divine life in the way that's best accommodated to us as human beings, right? Um, and something that's significant about this instrument is that this instrument is capable of forming and of comprehending complex signs, okay? So you can make symbols of whatever sort. They can be more or less intelligent. You know, you can, like, go out and I can go out into my garden. I can, like, drink six beers, and then I can arrange those beers in the form of a snowflake. And then, like, as people walk by, you're like, I made a snowflake, you know? Um, so that'd be, like, low on the, uh, the totem of intelligent signs. But our Lord, in adopting this human nature and then living these human mysteries, he communicates with a significatory power. I just made that adjective or adverb. Yeah, power or adjective. I made that up, all right? But he, he communicates <laughs> this with a power of signification that is beyond all imagining, right? Because it's, it's the most transcendent, or that's to say it's like it's the most sublime, and it's the most intimately united with the Godhead. Um, and in passing through mysteries, he fixes the way in which this sign signifies, okay? So like... For instance, this is why St. Thomas will say that he passes through different mysteries because each mystery signifies something distinct. It each has a kind of formal causality, which is a little bit philosophical jargony, but based on the way that you're talking, I'm assuming that your audience is somewhat uh, used to philosophical stuff. So cheers to you, my friend. Um, so like, uh, for instance, I'm thinking of the baptism of the Lord. That is very provocative as far as signs go, because what do we think of when we think first of baptism? We think of what, you know, being cleansed of original and personal sin, being adopted as a son or daughter of God, being filled with 
grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, blah, da, da, yes, and such, right? But, but Christ doesn't need any of that because he already has all of that. He has that by right. He has that by nature. So why is he doing it? And so St. Ambrose will say, he descends into the waters not to be cleansed by them, but to impart to them the very power of cleansing, all right? That is a very, very significant gesture. And how does he choose to do so? He descends into the waters and he rises from the waters. And when St. Paul reads that text in Romans and in Colossians, he says, when he descends to the waters, he signifies his burial, his death. And when he rises from the waters, he signifies his resurrection and new life. And so the reason for which he would undergo a baptism, which for him wielded no efficacy, was to give us an example, not just like a, hey, you might prayerfully consider getting baptized in the future, but no pressure, right? Because I'm a principled pluralist. No, like he actually He's, he's starting the work of baptism, right? He's initiating the work of baptism. We talk about it as like the institution of a sacrament, which it is. But we typically think about that in terms of like ribbon-cutting ceremonies. It's like our Lord opened an FAO Schwartz on the banks of the Jordan. There's a really long train there which runs by itself. It's like, no, 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 all right? So like God is is reorienting his creation so as to make it better. He's reorchestrating the voices of this kind of symphony so that it conspires all the more efficaciously to the salvation of you, like you in particular, first person, singular, in the kind of affectionate sense, right? So like our Lord is reorienting creation towards you with this, with this, with this instrumental power, which has this whole, you know, cluster of signs, which are meant basically to be born upon a thinking subject so that it will dawn upon our minds and draw our hearts and then implicate us in the salvation so that we become agents and actors in it, not just mere like passive recipients, right? People appealed to, you know, as just swell fellows, right? So this is, this is huge. Uh, and how that plays out in like the liturgy and stuff is, I mean, that's a longer conversation, but I'm already working up ahead of steam, so I should probably dial down. A lot of arguments around mass that are driving me nuts lately are around, well, how can we, sh- how can we make it inside of an hour? When you have a big parish, communion alone takes 15 minutes, right? When you have a thousand people receiving Holy Communion under one species, it can take 10 to 15 minutes. And there's no cutting. There's no, you add more EMHCs, you're adding more time to purify the vessels at the end of Mass. So, you know, it's a, it's a net loss when you start adding people at a certain point. But there comes this line that I hear all the time, which is like, well, we need to hurry this up. Well, we need to do this. And I'm like, Kairos has no vote anymore in our liturgy, in our worship. You know, it's all Kronos. It's all the, the, the TikTok of our workaday world ruining everything. And the, the symbolic meaning of when I enter liturgy, I enter into the timeless. When I enter, I enter into the salvific mysteries of Christ. The events of the life of Christ has passed into the mysteries of the church. Why rush the events of Christ's life, right? Why rush this, right? We're not in any hurry. Like, I'm, I'm, it, it, see, that dominates the workaday world over this thing I do on Sunday at church for about an hour and 15 minutes, you know, and, and it drives me insane in this perspective. Cause I'm like, the more I learn about the connection between the, the life of Christ and the ministry of the church, the mysteries, the sacraments of the church, the more you see, like, I desire to spend time here. I didn't in the past. I was the guy who's like, well, uh, that homily was 22 minutes long. Time to start getting out the, uh, the knives and start sharpening them. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's just, this this Chronos dominance is 
is hurting the liturgy almost more, I feel like, than maybe even the iron law of vague sentimentality. All right, buckaroos, here we go. It's a new BetterHelp ad read. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around a mental health. There are a lot of people that think if you're in therapy, it means that there's something wrong with you, but that's wrong too. It means that you recognize that all humans have emotions. We can't avoid them, so we need to learn how to manage them. I love that part. We've been taught that that a mental health shouldn't be part of normal life, which is also wrong. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor, and nutrition. We should be focusing on our minds just as much as we focus on on our body. So as a lot of you guys know, I went to therapy a couple, like probably started maybe two years ago. It was a fantastic experience. I find that it's just, uh, just get up, like helps you on the process. A lot of the junk that's, that's happened. And a lot of, and even like part of the good stuff too, what are some um, good things that are going on in your life? You need to recognize, or just, just having an outside voice walk with you as you process stuff is really very, very cool. And I want to, the great thing about better help is that it is a much more um, affordable than in-person um, therapy. And you can be matched with the therapist in under um, 48 hours. I want you to give better help a try and see why over two million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is, is, is spotted by by BetterHelp and Catching Foxes. I'm a, Catching Foxes listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for once again sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. I okay. So initial thoughts occasioned by description of the faith and then the sacraments. So. St. Thomas will say, I am just a Thomistic hack. It's just what it is. You just got to own it at a certain point in your life. It's beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. But, he, but he says that basically the mysteries of Christ's life are applied to us by faith and sacraments of faith. All right? So salvation, again, not just like a little package that God, you know, wraps in gift wrap and then delivers. And then you unwrap whenever it's, you know, most fitting for you. If you're concerned about lots of mortal sins between now and the end of your life, maybe you wait till your deathbed. You know, that's an old storied tradition, as it were, in the church's life. But so like what's being communicated with this point is that salvation is reciprocal, right, to use a word that appears in the title of a document, the name of which is difficult to recall. Um, So there's, there's a relationship, okay, at the heart of salvation. That relationship is in God, right? So a triune, reality, as it were, but, but, but that is broken open to us, right? That is oriented to us. When you think about creation, what is creation but a kind of inclusion of creatures in the conversation which transpires in God from before the dawn of time, which eternally is at the heart of the Godhead, all right? So we were, we were made with a kind of Godward gaze. We were made to enjoy a divine conversatio, right? But we lost that as a result of sin, and so now the drama of human life is reconstituting it. And in order to reconstitute it, God takes the initiative, right? He sends his only begotten son, born under the law, born of a woman under the law to deliver from the law those who were subject to it. And he passes through a human life as um, a kind of manifestation of the salvation which he seeks to impart to us or that he seeks to incorporate us into. And the way in which we are incorporated into it is by faith and by the sacraments, not just as like two random things chosen offhandedly because they sounded good when put together in whatever language the particular document was composed, but because faith, St. Thomas says, apply the mysteries to us spiritually and the sacraments apply the mysteries to us corporeally or bodily. All right. So I have whatever, um, like the way in which I live my own faith has a kind of intellectual bent insofar as my contemplative life is fueled by study. But I also want to make sure that like we don't make 
the church a kind of intellectual enterprise, because I think it's completely fine to be simple and or ignorant uh, in certain extent and still participate in the church's life. And I think that's possible. Why? Because faith gives you God's own knowledge of himself. All right. By faith, we participate the scientia dei beatorum. We participate the very knowledge of God and of the blessed. All right. And then the sacraments communicate the divine life to us. They pass it through a kind of cipher of physical signs or of like physical instruments so that those things can be applied to us corporeally. So because we are body and soul, salvation is addressed to us body and soul. It is accommodated to us body and soul. And yes, we can spend the rest of our lives studying the faith so as better to appreciate that and better to enter into that. But regardless of the degree to which we have done so or how how well we're progressing along the way, those realities are still brought to bear on us. And, and like reception is just a matter of like paying attention, right? Every once in a while, just going like, holy freaking smokes. <laughs> this is happening. You know, like this is happening. And if that's just, you know, a little comment that someone makes in minute 37 of the pastoral council meeting every six weeks, like, yeah, 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 this is happening. Albeit, you know, we need to structure our liturgy in such a way that those who can't bear the weight of so much glory might not be chased from within our sacred halls. You know, yeah, okay, we're going to make some prudential decisions. But like, this is happening. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a full thought. I think it's just, it's good. What you describe is good. Yeah, the dominance of Kronos over the, the superiority of Kairos is in a way in which I haven't necessarily heard it explained. But I think that's just, I mean, that's, that's largely symptomatic of the way in which we as a people have just kind of fallen on hard times when it comes to intention and attention. We're just... We're just less and less capable of, you know, well, I, you could describe it, I suppose, in a variety of ways. But I like C.S. Eliot. C.S. Eliot. Sweet Christmas, Gregory. <laughs> T.S. Eliot says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And I fear yeah. that the general, you know, tendency of the 21st century is that we can bear less and less and less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, in the 19, in the early 1980s, there was a German cultural c- critic who said, with the presence of television, the and and the horror that european youths watch five hours of television a week and i'm like oh america we're still number one right uh he said culture cannot be passed down in such an environment and uh hans Urs von balthasar wrote culture and then in parentheses put or the faith cannot be passed down in such an environment and that's where in the epilogue he uses the phrase, the anima technica vacua, that Luke has made so popular over the years at Ketrodoxus. Um, but you find that, like, I, I, why is it that the, the experience of the dominant secular progressive culture, like kids who can be raised in a fervently devout home can immediately, when they step away from the home, they step into that whole worldview, which is antithetical. Right, it's antithetical to Christianity in so many different ways, and it's because they're not really raised in the church. They are, but they are also soaking in the vat of modernity, where they're taking in this this fractured schema of of what is the good life and what they're taking in the meta narrative everywhere they go. Right, unless you ban television, unless you get rid of this stuff. Like every song, every Disney movie, everything, it's not just the hero's journey, but it's also a particular narrative about what it means to be good, right? And one of the things that it means to be good in a Disney narrative nowadays is not I face trials and I overcome by my, you know, and I learn to grow morally like Pinocchio and going through 
you know, seeing pink elephants and all the such and so forth. Like the and then overcoming it and then going after his father and rescuing him from the depths and all that stuff. But the 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 heroism is not my internal changing. It's simply my self-acceptance. Once I realize and believe in myself, then as an old jalopy, I can beat all the other race cars in the, you know, whatever championship race and blah, blah, blah. And it, it's this constant theme of the the subjective gaze on oneself is salvation. And it drives me insane because you see this constantly being proposed in in our world. Like what you need, and this is, this is how I'm dovetailing to your book. The constant gaze of what will make you happy today is, you know, from work. How do you know what job to choose? Well, first, what brings you bliss and chase after your bliss, right? Choose the job you love and you'll never work a day in your life and things like that, which is very nice for bourgeois societies to say, you know, it's like, really? I I am literally digging a ditch or else I starve to death here in my third world country, so this is not my bliss. How dare you, right? So you have these things that um, what what job should I take? What career should I do? Well, do what makes you happy as your job. Okay, who should I marry? Well, marry the person that makes you feel good about you. And the moment they don't make you feel good about you, jettison them, right? Like this is the culture. This is the environment that we're in. This is the end game of the pursuit of happiness where it's become so inward focused the reference to other people is only to see how they make me feel. And so when you look at this, there is a sharp distinction between the understanding of happiness in Thomas and the understanding of happiness, you know, in Oprah, right? And we need to understand, <laughs> we need, I think this is where the intellectual um, side of our faith needs to come to bear with like a hammer down on our culture because if you don't get the end, you're not going to understand the means to the end, yeah. right? And I, I hear these sermons from priests that are getting criticized because they're like, well, they're very judgmental and stuff. And it's like, well, there are jerks from the pulpit, but there are also people who are calling their people out of sin. And when that makes uncomfortable, we say, I don't like them. But the reality is they love you. That's why they're calling you, they're identifying sin for sin and calling you up and out of it. Like, through the mercy of Christ. Like, if they did it, if they just yelled at you, like, that'd be one thing. But it, it's almost like, no, 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 you're you're impeding my comfort, right? And it's like this pushing away. So so what makes us happy? What makes us happy? Yeah, I, um, great question. Uh, I, I mean, like, people will often have this conversation from, like, a linguistic or a philological starting point. So like, yeah, people talk about happiness, people talk about joy, people talk about X, Y, and Z, other things, delight, pleasure, yada, yada, this and such. Um, and Delectation, you know, felicity. Yeah, <laughs> now, we're, now we're talking. Um, I, I, I mean, that's, that's as helpful as anything else. I mean, it's like when you begin a speech with a definition from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a trope, but the highest you can score on this exercise now is a B-, minus. so God bless. Um, <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines a terrible opening to a talk as... This, <laughs> <laughs> boom, and there's a picture of me there. Um, so when it comes to happiness, my basic instinct is that either you're talking about something out there, which places a demand on you, which places a claim on you, or you're talking about something in here, which is just going to evolve in whatever in whatever way it, it evolves to a, to a place of apparent liberty, and then you're just going to baptize whatever state that is. So yeah. I think that like. 
there ha- you have to begin these conversations with a recognition that we are made on the way. All right. Joseph Pieper has this great line. He's like, you know, like, like choosing the end. He's like, that's crazy town. He's like, you, you've, you're like an arrow that's been drawn on the bow and it's been shot towards your end. It's not, it's not something for you to make up. It's something for you to discover. And when you discover it, you make the recognition, aha, I need to proceed towards this end in such a way as to, you know, like make of my life something more coherent. And the steps towards that, while difficult, aren't too terribly complicated, right? Um, And so I think that when we talk about happiness, we're not talking about some kind of, you know, like some manner of self-expression or some therapeutic self-acceptance or some kind of like anti-metaphysical bracketing of the claims and demands of all other relationships and commitments, which is like basically what we see on offer in the 21st century, which is a great blessing. Thank you, Jesus, for permitting this. I know you have a reason for it. It's just very (laughs) obscure as to what that reason is. So until such time as you make it known, I'll just suffer it and pretend like I know what I'm doing. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, So, uh, yeah, but but when it it comes to, I think, just to like in plain speak, either you're talking about happiness as pleasure or you're talking about happiness as something meaningful, right? Meaning happiness or, or reality happiness. And I think that when you, when you set out in pursuit of pleasure, happiness, you're like, cool, cool. This is great. You know, like I'm not going to have any kids. My wife and I are just going to have like an incredible amount of sexual intercourse and never think about a future generation or like filling our home with love. We're just going to be incredibly selfish and have a thousand vacations per year. Um, now for people who can't have children, obviously maybe saying things like that could potentially wound, but in, in the larger conversation, it's just like you, you set out in pursuit of something that's out out there that makes demands on you, and then you conform your life to it, right? You accommodate your life to what's making the demands, to what's placing the demands. And I think that that's why a lot of people find commitment so terribly terrifying, because it's like, woof, if I make this rash vow, then in 30 years, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to look and I'm going to see the same person that I see today. You know, it's like, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that maybe just to center the conversation around that, like the difference between meaning and, I don't know, pleasure, maybe that's I've fallen back on the philological distinction that I said I wasn't going to do at the beginning, but all <laughs> roads return to hypocrisy. <laughs> hey everyone, Gomer here, and I want to take a moment to talk to you about a new sponsor to the show, Petrus Development Conference. This conference being held at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, will have over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large. Their primary audience is campus ministries, Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, Catholic dioceses, and yes, Catholic apostolates. They want you to invest in yourself and your career as well as your ministry's future. So come and build community with other Catholic fundraisers in a beautiful beach resort location. If you register in March, check this out. You'll be eligible to win a free three-hour consulting package with a Petrus coach. If you register in April, the first 10 people will receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Oh, yeah. Fundraising is hard, so let the fine folks at the Petrus Development Conference give you the tools and the community to make it less hard and actually enjoyable and fulfilling. Take a walk on the sunny side of fundraising at the beach in Naples. And listen, I've done tons of these Catholic conferences, and I'm telling you, the ones at a resort on a beach is where you want to be. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 takes place on June 13th to the 15th. And if you sign up today and use the coupon code FOXES, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. How awesome is that? So click the link in the show notes or head on over to PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Special thanks to Petrus Development for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. 
Yes. Yeah. It's hard to talk about happiness today because for most people, happiness is the subjectively satisfying. Right. Yeah, yeah. If someone's, if I were to say to you, are you happy? Right. Which is, is that literally like the first chapter of your book? Am I happy? So are you happy? How do you answer that? Not, I mean, like in the way that people ask the question, not especially like happy enough is what I typically say for me. The, like, <laughs> Meh. 50 50 i'm not having like deep dark thoughts and i can basically get out of bed and i can almost fall asleep at night um but like for me that the more interesting question is does it fit you know like are are you doing what you are to be doing and i i'm kind of careful about the language like are to be doing because i don't want to import ought language because people get real nervous about that but like basically you're made for a purpose god has are you that gonna purpose should all over our audience <laughs> you know, it's just like, you're, okay, you're made for a purpose, which God mm-hmm. holds that purpose in mind, but he also places the unfolding of that purpose in your hands. And he kind of, I mean, he continues to act in and through you. He made you to be free so that you could set about in pursuit of your destiny in a free way. And it's not as if like you, he has one particular and limited thing in mind and he has made, he has stacked the deck against you such that the chances that you discovered are exceedingly small. And if you do, it will be some, by some like ruse or magic trick. And, and meanwhile, he's standing by just watching you flounder with great delight, thinking of how wonderful a maze he has constructed as you wend your labyrinthine way forward. No, it's like God has placed your life in your hands because he loves to see it unfold as the fruit, as the work of your hands. And he's blessing what comes about, you know? Um, so, yes. So I think that, um, be, like, in the background is a theology of creation. Like, God made us so that we would be fulfilled, and we come to discover that fulfillment progressively. And, and usually it registers for us as, like, a sense of fit. Like, if I had other lives to live, I would, I would still live this life, even though I'm losing my hair and my teeth are turning yellow and I have this bump on my forehead and I have an injury to my knee such that I can't exercise in any satisfying way except for walking like a thousand-year-old man. And, <laughs> like, I can't fall asleep because I keep thinking about arguments for, like, theological things that I'm rehearsing over the course of whatever afternoon and yada yada and thus and such. And I can't preach in French and life. So, but it's like, who cares? I don't even care about my own little gripes because, like, I know that I am made to be here. How do I know that? I mean, at this point, it gets kind of, like, romantic and fuzzy, but it's just because, like, I'm here, right? It's because I'm here. It's because the way in which my life has unfolded to this point has led me here. Could I have done other things? Sure. But I'm not ambitious, and I don't have good ideas about the future. So I'm just completely content to let the Lord push me around (laughs) Mm -hmm. as I exercise my liberty with some modicum of facility. Yeah. So then how do you discern between the Lord pushing you around and your false desires pushing you around your your desire to be recognized? I knew this one guy who uh, Franciscan said, I'm going to write this dissertation so that 10 years from now, when when I have my doctor, I'm going to write my senior thesis as an undergrad that 10 years from now, when I get my doctorate, people are going to say, that was your undergrad thesis? That's way too difficult and all this stuff. And it almost killed him, but he chose, like, he lit, He was right up front, like, I am doing this more or less out of vainglory to blow the minds <laughs> off a future, you know, dean of faculty who is thinking about hiring me at, at, his, at his prestigious, you know, dual-credited institution. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I see what you did there, and I yeah. like it. It's a callback. Um, yeah. So my, my basic move on this is uh, just keep showing up, all right, which, again, is unhelpful insofar as it's not specific, but just keep showing up. So I think that, like, the Lord makes known what means conduce or lead to salvation. He's like, all right, I want you to pray every day. 
That seems borne out by the Christian tradition in spades. I want you to make good use of the sacraments. So you're definitely getting to Sunday Mass. It'd be sweet if I saw you more frequently. Also, sacrament of confession. You know, who's to say? I'm, I'm a big Medjugorje devotee, so I think once a month is a good standard for um, a lay person. You know, striving for holiness. I know. I've been to Medjugorje with your family. Let's go, baby. Let's and, go. And that lady, that locutionist lady whose name I can never remember. Yeah. Do you know who I'm talking about on the outskirts of town? Drina. Yeah. Do you know what she said about me? Did I ever tell I you the story? Is it oh, good or is man. it bad or is it way it's, off or way on? <laughs> so she's talking and she's, you know, getting these locutions and I'm writing them down like, oh, this is interesting. And then I started doodling this picture of the sacred heart that I always drew back when I was in college. And uh, I'm just doodling. And then she goes, all of you are very great, but you are better. And she pointed at me, and I'm not even paying attention. And the whole place goes, oh, and looks over at me, right? And, she, and I look up, and I see her, and I, like, panic, and she's pointing at me, like, right, in my, like, right near my face. And she goes, you are better. And then I just go, I didn't know what to do, so I fist pumped, and I go, oh, yeah, and I fist pumped, and then I immediately put my hand down, and it got really awkward, and she proceeded for the next, like, three minutes to tell me how I'm, the joke is, I'm Mary's favorite, and she said, uh, all of you are very beloved to Our Lady, but you will become better if you follow him, and then she pointed back at me, and then, oh, man, she said three things that was so, so, you know, I mean, I think they're all 100% true, because they were very... (laughs) Very effusive and uh, <laughs> glowing, glowing in my uh, in my sanctity, which was not at that time. But uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I was there. I was there with the Pine family rocking it. Dude, go squad! This this pleases <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> oh, that uh, opened up a whole another can of worms to talk about. Uh, that Medjugorje. does. <laughs> um, so I was about to make a list. I listed two things. You see where the rest yeah. of this list is going? You know, just like simple, straightforward yeah. stuff, like a little yeah. bit of penance, good Christian friendships. You know, studying the faith a bit. Um, you know, seeking okay, to be of well, service so to the material poor. Let me throw yeah. this out at you. Okay, so yeah. you, you know, Matt, I, I think you were on um, Pints with Aquinas with Matt. Um, or maybe Matt just said this, but he's like, you know, to live the Christian life is very difficult, but it's also very, it's not complicated. You know, you pray, you pray daily, you, you constantly, you know, do penance and you uproot sin in your life. And, but you do things like the liturgy and you love your family and you love your neighbor. And it's funny when here's the conflict that I always have in my heart. And this is why I want to say this Yep. to live the life of Christ, when you look at the saints and you look at the apostles, you look at these biblical witnesses, they truly did live extraordinary lives that when people saw them, they said that there is something unique about these people. Yes, there were the miracles and the, and the signs and all that stuff that made, you know, Greek pagans want to worship them as Zeus and Hermes or whatever. But, um, but you have the context of these beautiful radical, like St. Francis of Assisi, right? Mm-hmm. He can he he has his own conversion, and all of a sudden, before his death, tens of thousands of Europeans, uh, European men, are Franciscans, right? And the same is true, true. of Saint Dominic. I guess we can mention him. I mean, <laughs> thousands and th- like it hit this uh, this major moment. Monsignor um, uh, James Shea talks about like within Christendom, very few people were fully sold out for Christ, which is why you have, why the Reformation happened or why you have St. Francis preaching and all of a sudden, like thousands, like mothers used to lock their children in their homes if a Dominican friar, if two Dominican friars were walking through their village 
Right? Like, that's the stories that we're always told about there, the, the catalytic conversion of, of Europe with these men. And so how do I balance the simple life? The, the, one of my favorite images of sanctity is um, the Angelus, right? These, these farmers in the field, the husband, I think, and his wife, and he just has his hat off, and he's just praying the noon Angelus, right? Like, to me, uh, Kairos is winning. Right, like the noonday, you know, everything stops and we begin to worship God, even in the midst of farming and plowing and all this. There's that ordinary, hidden life. And then there's the life that I use when I try to teach people how to give testimonies to woo the, the, the secular heathen uh, to Christ, right? That, as, as uh, Dr. Regis Martin said, the density of piety to inspire the heathen. Right? How do we how do we hold these two? How do we hold the radical newness of life with the everyday life, smuggling Jesus into the ordinary? So, my basic thought is this: God wants you to be holy, right? I've heard of it, and He gives you grace, but He also implicates you in the giving of grace, right? Like He doesn't He doesn't just see to it that you're a passive recipient; He makes you to be an active participant in this whole dispensation of salvation. So I think that the general trajectory of ongoing conversion is that you come into greater and greater possession of the fact that, like, you are a protagonist, right? That you are a protagonist. My dad talks a lot about, like, men's faith formation, and he's been involved, whatever. Backstory isn't uh, the most important thing, but he talks about, like, becoming more and more engaged. Um, And so he has this whole schema for like step one, step two, step three, step four. But like this idea of becoming a disciple, becoming like a missionary, becoming, you know, and this has been a kind of cottage industry in the United States for the past 15 years with, you know, like forming intentional disciples and four signs of a dynamic Catholic and evangelical Catholicism, et cetera, at Ali Hussmati. But I think that the basic idea is that God loves you and God's love for you is earmarked with graces that gradually transform you more and more into an active, willing participant in this mystery of salvation. And I think that um, that's just like when, when you're praying, when you're making good use of the sacraments, etc., you begin to have a sense for God's movements, right? You begin to like deepen your appreciation for them. And so then when doors open, you're disposed to walk through. So, I mean, like you think about your own life, the, the growing of your own apostolate, and it started in, you know, like you went to, I mean, it started before going to Steubenville, but when you went to Steubenville and you're, you're in an environment where missionary discipleship is encouraged wholeheartedly, you know, like in a way that makes it fun and attractive. And like one day you're studying in whatever class and then the next day you're like, I, I don't know, like you're sledding down the big hill in a canoe. And then the next day you're jumping into the Ohio River naked with a bunch of your like dude friends. Um, did Dudity have to come up in that description? No, it didn't. But it did. No regrets. That's not um, only did Dudity, but also nudity. So yes, you know the AMDG way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's like you're you're in this environment where you're just being formed in a culture, and then you go forth and you're like, let's do podcasts. Like, let's get more involved with the parish. Let's actually disciple people in this work. And then you come to discover, like, as you exercise your agency, like as you live your life, that God opens more doors and bestows more gifts and makes you more and more uh, to be the man whom you're called to be. So I don't think that that necessarily means that everyone, like, you know, is is called to climb every mountain to forge every stream, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that there's a sense in which we're all called to to move 
in the life of grace. We're all called to initiate in the life of grace. But like the first posture of a Christian is one of active receptivity, right? And I think about von Balthasar and then the comments thereupon by Schindler and Heart of the World, Center of the Church, or Center of the World, Heart of the Church, whatever it's called, right? This idea that like the, the church is at its core Marian, right? It's, its posture is that of Our Lady, who in a lot of these depictions of the Annunciation is reading sacred scripture when the angel Gabriel appears to her. Like she's, she's often pictured in 13th, 14th, 15th century iconography as studious. And so, yeah, there's, there's something to that. I mean, there's, there's more than something to that. There's a lot to that. So when it comes to like stepping into, as it were, our role, role sounds too functional. When it comes to assuming more perfectly that place in the mystical body, which we were, you know, born to occupy that, you know, like to, to live in the way in which we were destined to do. Um, I don't think that like we, we start thinking like, how can I change stuff? I think we start with the disposition like, how can I be more receptive of the grace of God? And once that grace of God begins to grow in our hearts, you know, it's like a source of life welling up into eternity. It causes us to engage. It moves us to engage so that when you get an invitation from thus and such and whoever, you're, you're disposed to say yes. And even though you might not know everything on the subject, you're, you're disposed to give testimony. And then you come to discover that you like giving testimony and that you're good at giving testimony and that people are moved by your giving of testimony, etc. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a kind of like basic thought on the matter, I suppose. And to me, this is all going especially back to the notion of prudence, right? So, mm. which is the subject of your book. Um, prudence, for a lot of people, sounds like the, the cop-out you use to not do something dangerous, <laughs> bold, or adventurous. Or, well, that wouldn't exactly. be prudent. That wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> really means, I'm scared, but I want to intellectualize it. Um, <laughs> so, what is, what is prudence from a Thomistic Aristotelian platonic well i guess platon is a little different but what, what yeah, is yeah. prudence what is prudence uh, maybe, i mean just like apropos of the conversation it's the moral excellence of a protagonist right mm, it's I like that. it's that virtue which empowers you to live your life as a protagonist that's that's the that's the heart of it so i mean a variety of ways of describing that's so, it that's so I, mcintyrean of you the the narrative unity of a single life right <laughs> are you are you a big fan of mcintyre i am yeah are you a big fan of Father Survey Pinkares? I am. Yeah. Going back to prudence, understanding yep. prudence as that as that. What did you say? How the right? How, how did you put it? The narr- the the virtue that empowers you to be a protagonist. Mm. Make it simple. Yeah. Yeah. The virtue that empowers you. Yeah. Von Balthasar calls it right. The in the theodrama, every everyone must discern and accept their role. And when you said role, I was like, ooh, that's awesome. Then you're like, but that's too formal. It's like, oh, now I'm sad again. This coming from the guy who said our life is being an arrow shot out. Okay. I guess that's too formal. But uh, (laughs) so how do I become prudent? I consider myself to be an awful person when it comes to judgment for my own life. For the longest time, I second-guessed everything. Everything I did, my vocation to my beautiful bride, she broke, I mean, she, I broke up with her like five times before we got married, but I, it took me six proposals. It was almost like Peter denying Christ and then, uh, you know, saying, do you love me three times for his three denials? Like Shannon, I just over and over again, kept proposing. Eventually it worked. But, um, that notion of like, I, I second guessed and over intellectualized everything. I was lost in my own mind. I couldn't act. Mm. And I thought. I was being prudent. I was I was doing pros and cons. Yeah. You know, I was coming up, you know. And and then after I made the right act, right, which is to pursue her to get engaged, um it was as if all of that cold calculus was the dumbest thing on the face of the earth <laughs> and none of those reasons have ever made sense 
or are relevant in any way, shape, or form in these uh, 12 years of marriage. Yeah. So, uh, you know, advertisement, the last three chapters of the book are just about that, you know, like they're about agency. They're like, prudence is for doing, right? So there are basically three steps in a prudent act. First is, St. Thomas calls it counsel, which is, you know, you just, you weigh your options, you think them through, you determine which might be the best or which might be doable. And then you make a judgment, right? You're like, all right, these are the means. Let's kick it. And then the third and final is execution, you know, where you actually carry the thing through. And one of the things that St. Thomas says is, is that prudence is most to be associated with this third and final step, with command. And he says, for shorthand, prudence is just the virtue which commands. Because yeah. there are all kinds of other virtues for thinking through things, right? Prudence <laughs> is one of the virtues that you use for thinking through things. But there's, there's only prudence for commanding action. And I think that um, something that I say often is out of the head and into the body. Uh, you know, like if you're having a trial of faith and you, yeah, you just can't wrap your head around Eucharistic doctrine and you're worried that, I don't know, like maybe this is all made up and you need to become a Zwinglian. It's just like, just, just work (laughs) on Saturday mornings with the missionaries of charity in their soup kitchen for four hours, right? It's just like, you got to get out of your head and into your body. Because I think that there's, there's a sense in which we, as human beings, because of the fact that we're embodied souls, we like we interact best with reality. We learn best from reality. We like are perfected in conversation with reality by by intelligent action, right? We're not just made for thinking through things. If we were made for just thinking through things, God would have made us angels. He didn't, right? Mm. And so I think that that prudence, you know, it, it empowers us, it emboldens us to live with that mentality. Now, I think that you get better as this as you go on in life, which which is great, right? It doesn't mean, again, that all decisions are entirely straightforward or clear or that you feel great about them afterwards. But we're not like technicians of reality. We're not just trying to optimize the consequences of our decision. We're trying to become saints, which sometimes means making stupid decisions and like getting kicked off of theological commissions because you're like, yeah, this is heretical and you're crazy town. <laughs> um, right? So like being prudent means being holy in action. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like manipulating reality so it conduces to your financial gain. It's just like... I mean, that's, that's something you take account of, right? But it's, it's not everything. So I think that, that, that that's, that's helpful for framing the conversation. Uh, Benedict Rochelle, Father Benedict Rochelle, he said um, in his book, uh, A Virtue-Driven Life, he said that prudence is the only virtue where the natural and the supernatural do not always agree. Usually it's, you know, you got the sense of justice, you get a supernatural understanding and you you begin to give God what is his due, you know, the right homage, honor, worship, all that stuff. And they said, but natural prudence tends to be oriented solely to this life and the goods therein. And so for the Greek, the conception of living the good life or living the happy life, you know, you can't know that until they died, but then you evaluate their life. It's not what is going on with them after they die. Whereas for St. Thomas, it is to gaze upon the divine essence, right? Like the, to, to see God as he is and to be seen um, as God sees us, right? So when we look at this understanding, so do, do you agree with Father Bennett Rochelle and my terrible summary of his thing? Uh, I, I agree with parts of it. I would mm-hmm. describe it in a slightly different way. I never want to end up pitting grace against nature. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I understand what he's saying and I can, I can see it, yeah. And to me, the... Okay, so uh, prudence being the charioteer of the virtues, right? Like it orders all of these other things. This is my platonic reference there. Um, It orders all of these other things. But here's one thing that I come back to, nature grace. um, And you said it, and I keep wanting to say it, and then my ADHD brain goes off in a different direction. (laughs) There are tons of podcasts 
Uh, Huberman Labs podcast is one of my favorite, right? Okay. And it's one of these things that I both love and hate about <laughs> myself and modernity, which is optimization, right? Mm. This notion of you get an Apple Watch, you know, it tracks these 300 different things with their sensors. You categorize everything. Why don't you get a scale that can do your body fat percentage as well as your weight, and it'll send it, and it'll tweet it for you so you can be held accountable. Like, if they do, right, they, they, they give themselves over to technology to um, quantify everything about their lives for the sake of optimization. You know, you mm-hmm. have the phrase that I think might work in a moral setting in one way, uh, be 1% better. Every day, choose to be 1% better. You hear that. And you could take that phrase and run it in a million different directions. But the Huberman Lab yeah. podcast, one of the things is, okay, so what is happiness? And if you reduce happiness to dopamine, serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, like, you know, when you reduce it to a biochemical presence in your brain, for them, it's like, okay, well, how can I optimize these things? So what I'm going to want to do is have a certain amount of exercise, a certain amount of sleep. You got problems sleeping? Well, these are the things you need to do. You need to get red light into your eyes, kick out all the blue light. You need to do all this stuff. Staring at computer screens are going to kill you at night. So sit in front of a roaring fire and stare at it until you fall asleep. You know, and they go through all this stuff, uh, evolutionary biology and all ever uh, the sociology that kind of comes from that and all these different things. And I always wonder, like, at what point, here we have the kind of the meeting between science and self-care, right? Mm-hmm. But what if I am depressed, right? I, I literally have a, a biological problem within me. Like they talk about um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a deeply depressive man, and it colored his whole life as a Jesuit priest. Um, but what do you do in these circumstances where I don't want to give myself over to the technocratic understanding of what is happiness. But at the same time, I know that that doing certain things can actually create a, a feeling of felicity within me. Like I have a satisfaction here that enables me to study, to read, to pray, to whatever. Yeah. Yeah. How do I balance um, the, the, the Vita contemplativa <laughs> nailed it. with the uh, technopoly of our of our current regime. So, like you said earlier in the episode, um, you know you got to get the end right if you're going to go about it or going to go about pursuing it in a good way. And I think that here it's especially true. Like you said, it's not just about optimizing brain chemicals; it's about having a meaningful life, which will sometimes entail having suboptimal brain chemicals for extended periods of time. Um, because, like you know, in your case, having children isn't especially good for your health. Um, it, it might, you know, like some studies will find that it increases your health in the long term. But in the short term, it just ruins you. It just destroys yeah. you. Um, and that's, that's, but you have to have a kind of calculus that accounts for the fact that what you're doing is meaningful, right? Because you can't just flatten it or else you'll live in a flat world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whatever, like another mundane example. Um, I'm sure that I could eat healthier, Right. But I live in large community settings. Right. I'm presently assigned in a community of 17. I'm when I go back to the States, I'm in a community of 65 and I don't want to be the guy that has a special diet, you know, with with (laughs) the deepest of respect and love for those who do have special diets. But I'd rather just suffer the consequences rather than be accommodated. Like I can pick stuff out of particular dishes and and provided that the thing's not going to kill me, if it just makes me slightly like uncomfortable, like send it through, you know, or like um, I know that 
like drinking alcohol and smoking cigars is probably not optimal for my health. You just have to wait on the most recent study concerning red wine as to how it concerns your heart. But like, I don't care. I'm not going to read any of that. <laughs> um, but I just like the taste of beer and I like smoking cigars. All right. And sometimes when I, when I, when I drink beers and smoke cigars, I know that I'm not going to sleep as well that night and I'm not going to work as optimally the next day. But I also choose the encounter with those with whom I'm drinking beers and smoking cigars. And especially in you know, the company of men, oftentimes you need to have a reason to talk for an extended period of time. Otherwise, it feels like strange and artificial and like kind of put on like, wait, did you make like cucumber sandwiches? Like what's going on right now? You know, but like if you're drinking beers and smoking cigars, you can literally be there until Jesus comes back and everyone's like, let's go, baby, right? So your, your understanding of the good life has to encompass more than just, like you said, optimization, maximization in a kind of crass and material way. And then once you've got that in place, right, then you're, you're, you're discerning, as it were, to use a, like a kind of vocation term, but you're, you're thinking through your life as, as the fruit of a, a common conversation and a kind of common exercise or a common, common practice. So you're not just deciding what's best for me because you know, we all know people who do that. And oftentimes those people are annoying. Um, those are the type of people that say like, it's nine fifteen, I need to be in bed by nine 45. So I'm going to d- duck out guys, you know? So I, I, I can't actually clean up any of the dishes because of the strict schedule I keep, but I, I know that you'll be able to pick up the extra slack for me. I'll, I'm just going to go, you know, hop in my Prius and, and take off. It's just like, I mean, God bless, you know, like I love plenty of people who drive Priuses and who go to bed at nine fifteen. but it's like, I don't know. There's a, there's a sense in which like you lose some of your flexibility or you lose some of your capacity to uh, like engage in a richly human life if you just you know furnish yourself with inflexible rules which don't take account of the other people who are present to you you know like if you were to do that with your kids like I'm sorry you can't you can't cry at this hour because if I get seven and a half hours of sleep that puts me through five REM cycles and then I will be at just an absolute work monster tomorrow and daddy loves to be a work monster doesn't he so you're gonna quiet down aren't you sweetheart you know it's just like that's not human right we're just not machines we're we're, we're just more complicated than that and so yeah get the, getting the end right and then like hosting a conversation principally with God, right? But then, you know, with your spouse, with your children, not like, a, like kids, what do you think daddy should do in order to be happy? But in the sense, like, you're taking account of those whom you love yeah. because the point is love, right? The point is interpersonal. It's interpersonal all the way down. And as a result of which, it has to be entertained in just such a way. Um, so, yeah, that might be a good point at which to yeah. me stop talking. What do you want people to get out of your book? I want, I want people to get out of my book that they have what it takes to live a beautiful life, right? They're not lacking in some essential that they're going to discover by like magical means in five years, right? Like God is pouring into them grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's putting in their hands their freedom for their happiness in this thick sense of happiness. And God is kind of delighted to see them work out the details. Will they make a thousand mistakes? Absolutely, but that's how human life is intended to unfold. Not because God is crazy and likes to see us make mistakes, but because he made us human, because that's glorious in its own way. And to be human and to act in a way that is human means inevitably to make mistakes. So we're not optimizers, maximizers, right? We're not just always weighing consequences against each other. We're seeking the Lord where he may be found. And if we stumble and fall, cheers, keep on going. (laughs) Life is good and it can be better. Indeed, indeed. All right, folks, prudence, choose confidently, live boldly comes out. April 18th, 2022, uh, barring another global pandemic, uh, should be released. If, if there is one, you can get the Kindle edition, which is going to be nice. Um, are you a Kindle guy? Do you read electronically or do you just have tomes and tomes? 
I'm a Kindle guy because I live in Switzerland and it costs a thousand dollars to ship anything here, so <laughs> I just don't ship anything anymore. Nice, nice. It's all digital, yeah. all ones and zeros. All That's right, it. Father, thank you so much for joining me for an hour and a half, or I think six hours now. It was a very prudential discussion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so happy I set my backup because when my when my thing went out, the recording reset. So I don't know if uh, everything's fine or not. I'm just scared. So, uh, yeah, thank you all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all for listening. God bless. <laughs>